But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when you, they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the REACH podcast. This is something a little bit different in uh, the next couple of episodes are going to kind of be like a little bit of a mini-series on uh, bone and bone adaptation to exercise. So today's episode, I'm talking to Dr. Alex Ireland, who's a senior lecturer in physiology at Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK. Alex has a wealth of experience in areas of, of bone physiology and adaptation and this episode he does a, a phenomenal job of giving an overview and an insight into uh, the physiology of bone and how it responds to different stressors so it was a really cool chat from Alex uh, in today's episode and that will be followed by uh, Dr. Kerry Winterstone in the next episode who has done a lot of interventions in uh, individuals with cancer breast and prostate specifically in trying to translate this uh, this research into practice and actually developing interventions around uh, bone adaptation. So what I wanted to do was was uh, give you both an insight into the really nitty-gritty of, of the ins and outs of bone physiology and how it can respond to stress. And Alex does a phenomenal job of doing that in this episode. And that will be followed by Kerry in the next episode who gives some of the, the practical applications and the challenges of doing this in a real world in uh, populations such as cancer or older adults. So really uh, appreciate Alex's insight. As I said, you'll you really get to understand how much of an expert he is in this area. Uh, it was a phenomenal chat. And as always, I appreciate all of your support and all the messages telling, telling me about uh, episodes you've learned from and, and how you're enjoying the show. If you can, do me a favor and jump on iTunes and leave me uh, or leave the show a quick review and just let me know how you're enjoying it because that will help us move up in the charts and get more uh, awareness to the show and get the word out to to uh, you know a broader audience but other than that sit back enjoy the show and we'll chat to you soon i was reading one of your papers there um from 2017 and it was a really interesting title where you're talking about um exercise for osteoporosis and having to navigate between over eagerness and defeatism and i think it's a really it's a really good reflective title of where people's perspective is on bone particularly when you talk about adaptations and trying to approve it there is this kind of like well we can't do anything so we might as well not do anything and and i think your paper really well uh, laid that out and we'll cover most of that in in the episode today but let's start off with with giving people a bit of your background and, and what you're up to now yeah so um i started off about uh, eight or nine years ago um looking at master athletes so i had no interest in bone whatsoever i wanted to work in elite sport 
um, and I just had a, um, a master's thesis that I had to do and there was this offer to do it in the lab I was working in, going to Finland and scanning some athletes, so that sounded pretty cool. So um, I decided to do that. And I say I had no real interest in bone whatsoever. You know, it's dead, it's dull. Pfft, who cares? <laughs> and, uh, and so we went went to Finland. And um, you know, in, in in hindsight, I mean, I mentioned last week. You know, they did some prep beforehand, scanning some existing data, and stuck in a dark room, like outlining bones for about twelve hours a day. And I really, I, it's, it sounds like slightly masochistic, but I, really, I just really enjoy it. Like looking at, I thought really interesting how they differed and. Um, then we did the scanning again. That was like 10 to 12 hours or so a, a day for like 12 or 14 days on the run, uh, 30, 35 degrees, middle of summer, stuck in some like sort of 50s uh, tin hut. Um, and on the outside, it sounds terrible. I really enjoyed it, really enjoyed interacting. And then kind of when I put the data together, actually, in hindsight, it wasn't very interesting what we found really. <laughs> So it's, it's it, in, it, you know, you think you've got to be really keen to want to kind of carry on with, um, with that. Um, but yeah, so so I, I started doing that, and then I, at the time I was a technician, so I'd taken a job as a research technician um, in the lab because I already had a mortgage and, and wife and, uh, and stuff like that. I couldn't um, really commit to a, a, a shorter term thing. Um, and I, I asked my supervisor, Jan Ritvega, guide supervisor, masters. I said, I really terrified about going up to him and asking him about this but I said um, I'd really like to do a PhD and he was like I'm really glad you asked uh, you know really glad you wanted to do it and in hindsight I see why you know I was keen and sort of went on and did yeah. things on my own uh, the minimum things and and that was it so we we set up some stuff sort of part-time um, a couple of studies in tennis players so we set up um, going to uh, tournaments like a junior tournament and then a veterans tournament um, took the kit there, like in the back of a, a post van. So uh, we did it during the summer. So, um, yeah, the, the, so we did it in the summer. So the university, you know, there isn't so much post flying around when the academics are away. So we, we borrowed that and, and went down and tested. Got like 90, uh, 90 older people, 90 veterans and 90 kids and wrote those up and then sort of cracked on and did, did other things. So, and then, you know, through a postdoc and, lectureship and and here we go it's such a cool topic though isn't it i mean most of us i included get the surface of surface level uh, lectures on bone physiology you know what i mean like it's kind of porous it gets weaker with age and then you learn minimal essential strain and then you go on with your life you know what i mean like this and and most of us then kind of take that into our practice as well so i'm really excited to talk to you in in terms of just kind of digging into this stuff um Starting with the physiology of bone and, and, you know, just what you were talking about there, like what is it made up of and, and you know, how can we influence it in terms of change and, you know, what are some adaptations with age and all that type of stuff? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's different bits. I mean, the uh, I suppose the, the fundamental bit is sort of what it's made up of. So we, we all kind of know the mineral bit, so this sort of chalky substance, um, you know, and... Um, this is what you see. So it's the, the mineral component that, that actually gets attenuated by x-rays. So when you look at an x-ray, um, you know, that's what you're what you're seeing is this sort of mineral component of the bone. But bone is a kind of composite material. So there's also an organic a collagen component. So um, uh, same sort of similar sort of material to what you have in your tendons and muscles. Um, and that's so the, the two are, are good in different kinds of stresses. So 
um, mineral components better in compression, collagen in tension. So together, like all composite materials, they're kind of stronger as a as a whole. Now the problem is with collagen is is it's very easy to get a picture of the x-rays and the mineral you know because we 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 can get a good assessment of the mass and size and things like that but it's very difficult in in patients to take um any meaningful measures i mean you can take biopsies and kind of chop it up and get something out of it um but you we really don't have a good idea of how this collagen's contributing to kind of bone fragility and bone strength it's a huge kind of like black hole. I mean, we know it's important because you you might have heard of osteogenesis imperfecta or brittle bone disease. Um, so that's primarily a condition where the, the quality and the quantity of the collagen um, uh, in the bones is uh, affected. And uh, as a result of just the collagen changes pr predominantly, you know, you have these very fragile glass-like bones that are very prone to, to fracture under kind of quite small, quite small loads. So obviously that's an extreme example but most things in humans, there's kind of a variation. You know, people exist along a spectrum, and no doubt it's, it's probably the same um, for collagen. But it, it's difficult to get a handle on, on it because it's sort of so ingrained with the um, with the mineral. So that's what it's made of, um, and the way that um, it's sort of controlled is you have two main uh, types of cells. So you have the osteoblasts, so they uh, lay down um, initial sort of soft material called osteoid and then they mineralize it to make hard bone. So the osteoblasts make bone and then the osteoclasts break down bone and so the balance between these two of them um, is what determines whether your bones get bigger and stronger or whether they get weaker. Um, and they're all controlled, um, there's a series of, of cells called the osteocytes, so they're osteoblasts that get trapped into the bone as it's growing and they act as a kind of signaling network um, for the bone. Um, so they respond, receive and respond to things like mechanical stimuli. Um, and they're connected by this huge network of, um, uh, sort of little wiry connections, um, 175,000 kilometers of, uh, of connections, you know, it's huge net signaling network within the bone. So that's it, the two opposing actions, those cells and this controlling cell are what kind of regulate bone mass and size and strength um, throughout life you talked about some extreme examples there in terms of brittle bone disease but let's talk about more relevant examples in terms of the aging process um that can be compounded by inactivity in terms of um the loss of bone health yeah so um yeah so so during development and growth you know the the bones are increasing in length they're getting wider they're getting bigger um and then they sort of plateau around 2025 so there's an idea um, that one of the important ways to ensure bone health is to make sure that you kind of go up to that peak and get the highest peak that you can so through nutrition through exercise and so on you know you want a high it's called peak bone mass the idea that you make your bones as big and strong as possible at the the, the age of young adulthood um, and then lots of contributing factors um, in terms of sort of the uh, health of cells, nutrition, exercise, and so on, contribute to this gradual decline that you have um, uh, over from say 30, 35 or so onwards. Um, uh, so that bones um, at the ends of bones, so at the ends of, of long bones in particular, where you have this um, thin shell of cortical kind of compact hard bone, and they're mainly sort of 
spongy or what we call trabecular bone, this kind of like spidery honeycomb network. So that network kind of breaks down so you get less lower density. Um, and then the shafts of the bones, um, it tends to all be this sort of ring of very hard, compact bone. And that ring thins out, so the walls become a lot thinner, and also some of the density is lost, so the bone that's there, this hard bone, gets gets less dense as, as we get older. And certainly sort of physical activity is a really important contributor to that. Um, so we can talk about in a bit about exercise and, and bone and how they, they affect it, but, but as you'll see, there's a really strong effect of physical activity and inactivity in bone. And old people just don't generally do any sort of, you know, very vigorous uh, physical activity that, you know, physical activity is a whole drops off, but in particular, it's the very vigorous physical activity that we know is good for bone that becomes very, very rare. So we did a study um, looking at, at women in their 60s and 70s, healthy, sort of independent living women. Um, and we put a threshold of 1.5 G. So it's sort of a brisk walk, kind of um, anything a bit higher than that. And we were getting maybe five or 10 um, impacts a day we were recording at that level. So, you know, you compare that to um, thousands, tens of thousands that, that, you know, kids and young adults are doing you talk about the connection between muscle and bone as well like the two are so interrelated in terms of that and just more broadly health in general the 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 lack of high intensity really is a killer isn't it and i don't know if you struggle with this as well but there's it's almost low-hanging fruit to criticize us as exercise physiologists or kind of like the more mechanis mechanistic people where we're promoting exercise structured exercise specifically targeted for an outcome and then there's the reducing sedentary behavior and, and the movement and you can understand on a population level why it's so important to do so um but it is a challenge for us and like you know that is important but also it's really important to be targeted with what you're doing as well yeah and i mean there's there's lots of different things that come into it there's things like exercise prescription that it's it's a tough sell really because what what are you saying to somebody if you're asking them so so you're asking people to jog to do something quite arduous to make a difference and really what we're saying is probably will half your chance of having a fracture in the next 10 years you know it's such a <laughs> yeah. it, it's not an immediate outcome you know you you do at the very very other end you know exercise and the idea that it might have some effect on survival that's immediately like particularly somebody's in the, the midst of that where you know it's a really important issue you know you can you can understand that and something that it's a huge motivation for people and there are things like with muscle as well that, you know, with older people, if you do things to improve their mobility or reduce falls, there's a huge motivation. Again, you know, you can't get up your stairs. You know, you can't do, do the things. You can't play with your grandkids. If you do this, you do, you know, you can do it. It's a big motivation. The same with falls that, um, you know, a lot of older people are, are, are fearful of, of having falls to go about their daily business. And if you can take that fear away, you know, it's, it's, it's got to come with a good motivation really. Um, and it's hard to, to, to do that because it's such a sort of remote thing for people, you know, they won't see that they have bigger, stronger bones. You know, we can give them a readout, which tells them that something's gone up 10% <laughs> in their theoretical chances, but it, it is a very, very tough sell. Um, so I don't know whether you have to package it in as sort of, you know, do these sort of things, which actually are the things that tend to be most beneficial for muscle power and, and sort of important aspects of uh, other aspects of performance and sort of sneak it in there that, that you know, as part of a kind of multi-health benefit program. 
Um, yeah, I think you nailed it there because we have this conversation regularly, even from kind of a behavior change perspective in terms of value expectation or what they're anticipating the benefits are. Do they really care what's changing in terms of the yep. physiology versus how can we make it relate to their ultimately it has to be quality of life, doesn't it? I mean, if you're taking someone who's previously been sedentary for 30, 40 years and we're saying you need to do this, you know, especially in terms of bone adaptation and how how frequent and, and consistent that has to be across time. <laughs> go do a load of hops out of bed every morning. You know what I mean? Like it's we have to make sure that it, it fits with that lifestyle as well. Um let's talk a little bit about that connection between muscle and bone and how maybe perhaps muscle can influence adaptation to bone. Yeah, so so there's a couple of levels. So there's this direct kind of mechanical effect that muscles have on bones. So the way that in particular our long, uh, our limbs are arranged is that the muscles tend to attach very close to the, the joints. Um, so if you think of your, your biceps, um, you can sort of feel on the inside the little kind of stringy tendon bit. And that's about an inch or so away from where the elbow joint is. Now, so if you put something in your hand, if you uh, curl 10 kilograms or something similar to me, uh, the length of your forearm where you're applying that force is about 12 to 15 inches away from, from the center of the elbow. Um, so what that means is for the every, every kilogram that you want to lift with your, with your hand, you have to apply 10 kilograms or so of force with your muscles. So, you know, you have these huge muscle forces acting on, on your bones, um, as you do everyday movements. So it kind of scales up with the, the, the type of exercise that you're doing. So you imagine in the, the lower limbs, the ratio at the ankle, that this sort of, um, lever ratio is about three, four to one. So that even if you're doing something like walking, where you're hitting the ground with one, one and a half times your body weight, the force is being applied to your calf by your calf muscles to the bone, a sort of four, four and a half times body weight. So your your body experiences, you know, your bones experience these really large muscle loads every day. Um, and so, you know, this is the thing that really loads the bones and they have the thing that they have to resist day in, day out. So they adapt themselves in order to be able to cope with those demands um, and so you can see sort of, um, examples of this happening. So obviously, um, as we're growing up, we start off with very small, very weak bones. And you imagine that an infant's bones aren't going to be able to cope with the, the body weight of a, you know, fully grown adult. So our bones sort of sense our growth as we, as we are growing and, and the bones become bigger and stronger just to be able to cope with these daily forces. And we can see how important just the, the forces are that we experience in daily activities such as walking when they're removed so when people have a spinal cord injury if they um are non-ambulatory they can't walk for a number of years they'll lose up to 40 or 50 percent of their bone um uh, at certain lower limb sites because the body can kind of sense that it's not mechanically needed and so it will break it break it down so this huge effect of these daily sort of muscle pulls on on bone it kind of highlights then as you're speaking, and particularly in early stage and growth, how important nutrition is as well to complement that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a couple of studies, uh, you know, showing sort of an interactive effect of um, early life activity and uh, in particular and, and exercise so that there haven't been as many as, as perhaps you'd like, but, but, but yeah, the, the, certainly you need 
you know, the, the majority of cases is children starting with reasonable level of nutrition. But yeah, additive nutrition, um, you know, seems you need to have the kind of building blocks there to get the, the benefit. And that might become more um, effective in, in later life when older people, their sort of dietary habits change. And particularly within um, sort of uh, particular clinical populations, so people with cancers or, um you know where appetite and and diet maybe change then then these things maybe become even more more important let's talk a little bit about um you know how exercise might might uh, help in terms of at least the preservation of bone in a second but um quick question on so this whole idea of bones heal better or stronger after they're fractured is is that true can you dive into that and tell us a little bit about that because obviously older adults in particular experience a lot of falls that do turn into fractures what's the what's the science there i mean they should resume um their their strength they say bones tend to to regulate um you know they sense the stresses they're experiencing and if you go back to your everyday habits um the strains and the the loads on the bones will be be the same obviously the bones weaker it's going to be getting strained deformed kind of squished and squashed more um, because it's weaker and so your bone will sense that and kind of grow back to its original strength if you carry on the sort of activities that you did beforehand so it should eventually reach the 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 sort of strength that it was beforehand but it's it's very slow metabolically um bone you know so each sort of cycle takes a long time so compared to something like muscle where you see kind of quite quick adaptations you'll notice your strength improving in four weeks and you'll notice bigger stronger muscles in um, two or three months it, it's a much sort of slower turnover process for for bone um it, it it's frustrating you know in, in working with kind of older adults we're, we're very reactive and with the physiological changes particularly with muscle you know we talk about the importance of muscle mass in older adults or even in uh you know individual cancer undergoing certain therapies but you're at a point where all these physiological changes with age have occurred in the muscle that makes it more difficult to um, experience adaptation from a, a, you know, a stimulus. Talk a little bit about that and, and does it become harder with age to, to improve bone and um, what do you see, uh, even talking about the timeline of adaptation, obviously in six plus months to see anything you know, really meaningful. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so... Um Certainly, there's there's a couple of, of differences. So um, there's not a huge amount of it, but we've done it. And a couple of other groups have looked at um, the sort of one definite change is obviously when you're um, a child, you're growing, your bones are getting longer and, and wider, um, and they have this thing called a growth plate. So most of the the growth in long bones occurs at two end, the two ends of the bones, a sort of layer of of cartilage where this occurs. Um, and these are called growth plates. And obviously, when you stop growing in length, they stop kind of working and close. Um, and it seems from um, research in different groups that whilst you're young, you can make your bones bigger. So the cross-section area, they become wider. And this can be pretty pronounced. So in some of the tennis players we looked at, their wrist was about 20% bigger, fatter and wider in the, the racket arm that they've been stressing than the non-racket arm. But once that... Um, growth plate fuses once you um 
reach kind of maturity, adulthood and stop growing in length, it seems that the pattern of changes kind of gets quite different. So it becomes difficult, particularly at the joints, the ends of bones, to increase the size, the cross-sectional area of bone, although you can still make it more dense. Um, there still seems to be a potential to do a bit in the shafts of the bones. Um, but yeah, that sort of mechanism seems to really slow down. So you have this unique opportunity in childhood to really grow bigger uh, bones as well as more dense bones. And then with older age, um, there are different things. So there's um, the first thing is the muscle stimulus that try as hard as you want. You look at the sprinters that continue to exercise really, really hard and are very talented. They get slower and slower every year. So regardless of what you do, even if you're working hard and exercising, the stimulus that you're going to be able to supply to the muscle is going to be smaller year in, year out. So it is gradually going to waste away. There is also some, there are some studies um, in animals, um, but it's difficult to do in, in humans, where they've applied the same sort of strain to the same amount of deformation, the bone, same sort of level of squashing to young and old animals. And you find that even though you do the same squashing, so you take out the, the idea that, that you might have stronger or weaker muscles, even if you do the same type of training, you get much less response in the older bones. So it seems like a kind of perfect storm that the stimulus you can give to the the bone through exercise is diminished and also that it, it's less responsive to, to exercise how much if any of that is uh the the hormone regulation you know indirectly whether it's testosterone or estrogen um how much do they play a factor into bone remodeling they're certainly very important, estrogen and testosterone. So estrogen also in, in, in males, and there's a, a huge effect. I mean, it's most obvious in, in females. that um, So at um, sort of maturity, when women reach reproductive age, um, they obviously estrogen levels in, increase and they um, start to have this deposition of kind of mechanically unnecessary bones, this additional bone that we think is a, a kind of reservoir, a resource for lactation so that they're able to um, to give children the, the calcium. Um, and so for their kind of size and muscle, women tend to in the reproductive years have um, bigger, stronger bones or at least stronger bones. Uh, but obviously at, at menopause that that wanes away and you see this huge loss of um, uh, of bone and, and at that point you get this sort of sex divergence in terms of um, osteoporosis and, and fracture risk and, and stuff like that and I, I can't think of the exact figures but but generally sort of the risk of being osteoporotic is sort of two to three times greater in, in women than in men. That makes sense then obviously with age and another contributor to how it can be more difficult to influence bone with, with his activity yeah. perhaps with the loss of hormones with age. How can exercise help? What can it do? Um, what do you see in terms of specificity um, and even maybe site-specific changes in bone? Because, you know, it's not going to be universal across the body. Yeah, so, um, I mean, the we know quite a lot about the types of things that bone likes from animals. And we're able to, with animal studies, sort of really... Um, really clearly sort of define the loading that we can apply to the bone. So we know exactly what we're doing, how many times, when we're doing it, all these things, and we can pick out all these things and, and, and uh, change them and then look at the response in animals. Um, so I could tell you a little bit about that. It's a bit more difficult to do in humans because the, the, the type of things required to do in that are too invasive with humans. 
and and because it takes so long to see a response exercise response we've not been able to sort of try doing these things in the majority of cases but so so a lot of what we're going to say is based on on animal studies but um, overall, it seems that the bones like really high peak forces. So that's what they adapt to. So things that provoke, you know, whether they're receiving a big force, it deforms them a lot. That's a big stimulate, stimulus for them to grow. So because um, muscles are the biggest stressor, the sort of things that really um, seem most osteogenic or benefit for beneficial for bones growing are what we call um, eccentric contractions. So this is when the muscle um, is trying to produce force, but lengthens. So this is things like um, jumping, running. So when you're landing, your muscles are stretching and still producing force. And under these conditions, they produce much higher force than what, say when you're you're lifting weights or things like that. Um, so, so yeah, those sort of things, if you can do things with an eccentric component, so yeah, running, jogging, anything with a kind of bouncing sort of impact movement, which provokes the, the muscles into to lengthening. Um, is very good. It seems from animal studies that we don't need a huge amount of, of impact. So you don't need to, to run for 30 or 40 minutes. In animal studies, even sort of five jumps a day were um, enough to, to produce a good response. We haven't managed to dose that out convincingly in humans yet, but I think probably, you know, five or 10 minutes, you know, rock, running, jogging, um, you know, should should be good. Um, and yeah, it's very, very site specific. So um, you can have greater responses in one region of a bone than another. And certainly you'll you'll look and, for example, uh, runners tend to have uh, sprint runners tend to have uh, big, strong legs, um, better spine, more bone in the spine. But the, the wrist isn't really affected, which is another fracture prone site because you're not stressing it as you as you run. Um, and similarly, in tennis players, they have a much stronger um, uh, racket arm, but really there isn't much of an effect on the non-racket arm. So it's a very kind of honed site-specific system, which makes sense. You know, there's a metabolic cost to building up and maintaining bone. So why do it in, in areas that, that, you know, don't need it? Coming back to your what you're saying, so obviously eccentric action is a component of lifting as well. So more specifically, you're kind of talking about the bounding types where there is some sort of kind of higher impact or quicker impact, um, like running and, and bounding and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in given that then, so in terms of risk factors, people with NEOA, osteoarthritis or, or obese, you know, what are the considerations there when you're working with, you know, more clinically focused populations who are the ones who are going to have potentially more issues with bone that need more targeting anyway how do you work around that um yeah so that there is a problem i mean this is probably where i get to the end of of, of where i you know I, i'm not a practitioner i don't sort of um supervise exercise but a lot of, of the clinical groups that are related to these conditions have released um advice so um, worked with the, the NOS, the National Osteoporosis Society, has just released a, a new set of guidelines for people with osteoporosis and vertebral fractures. Um, and it's sort of a guideline for physios, PTs, um, other people who might be involved in prescription of exercise for, um, you know, what are the kind of criteria and how would you assign different types of exercise to people and also exercises to avoid so different types of yoga or things where, where it might not 
be be so safe to do so it's probably best uh, you know a lot of these um sort of clinical conditions uh, there are sort of specific exercise guidelines for for them so coming back to what you were talking about in terms of um exercise to avoid why would certain exercises be more unsafe than others uh just uh, you know little stress is good too much stress is is you know is is bad you know certain uh, particularly with vertebral vertebral fractures certain flexion positions um you know it, it might be yeah problematic um you know if you have um osteoarthritis or or pre-existing injuries the things that we're asking you to do are very demanding on all all areas of the body so not you know the muscles are producing massive forces the tendons are producing uh, are receiving and sort of uh, conducting massive forces um and the bones are, are obviously receiving massive forces so you know all those parts need to be in a position to to receive that and you know for example if you're somebody with tendon injuries um it, it might might you know there might be conditions where you, you you need to sort of be very careful with with what you do positively influencing bone adaptation actually improving bone strength or health as you age in particular where activity can be difficult it's equally as important then to preserve it and we seem to have a pretty good handle as on that as opposed to actually finding ways to improve it yeah so i think one of the things that um is is sort of forgotten about is is the fact that that you know as i said from the example of people who are who have a spinal cord injury and, and are in a wheelchair you know the de- things you do every day are so good for your muscles and bones you know you see the people who go into bed rest who who don't do just sort of daily walking about how bad that is for you so you know as the very sort of first line in in, in conditions where you are going into bed rest you know if you have cancer and and, and treatments and you know activity might reduce you know this is one of the sort of the first messages really daily activity is doing something good if you're able to carry it on you know that has got to be the first line and perhaps we don't emphasize enough that we we sort of people feel like there's this too big a jump to to make to vigorous exercise you know really do every bit more you can do is is sort of valuable um so preserving your daily activities yeah is 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 really important and you know particularly um and this goes for everything you know that as you get older things become more challenging um and there there will come a point where you you know uh, all of us at some point cannot negotiate the stairs but the toughest task you do every week is your best training you know if if the hardest thing you do in a week is go up the stairs that that's your biggest training session and, and that's what your sort of body's adapting to and if you stop doing that you know, obviously you're going to deteriorate to, to whatever level is the, the the next level of physical activity you can do. That's obviously got to be balanced with safety because you don't want to, you know, having a fall, having a fracture, being in bed for six months is going to be worse than any kind of other level of, of, of activity. But, you know, preserving, trying to preserve as high impact, as intense an activity as you can safely do, I think is is really the key to, to preserving things. And I think it comes back to then, coming back to what you're talking about, even enjoyment in terms of starting to see some emerging evidence in things like football to preserve yep. bone health, which I think is really cool because if you ask me to get up out of bed and maintain my bone health by doing a few hops every day, I'm much more likely to go down and play Masters football. So yeah, 
and that's then a product of obviously the stimulus that's involved in, in football in terms of the cutting and, and jumping and things like that. Yeah, so, it, you know, it's, it's, it rings very close to home. You know, I, I, I play football and um, I've been injured, uh, been out for a couple of months. And in all honesty, I've done nothing else. Uh, it just <laughs> the idea of going to the, the gym, you know, is I, I espouse the virtues of exercise to everybody. I meet, write about it, but, you know, I... I I really struggle to motivate myself to do to do other types of exercise. If you find something you like doing, you know, then then that's great. And you know, I I would do play football if it was bad for me, which a few times it's proved to be. Um, so yeah, very much find, finding things that finding the things that people enjoy or that you can sort of unconsciously fit into your day. That that you know, if you if you can take the stairs you know five flights of stairs or something like that you know in in a day maybe a flight of stairs every hour you know rather than getting the lift just these things that you can be bothered to do making it just that bit easier for people you know you've got all these priorities and things you've got um your kids your grandkids your work or, you know caring for other people elderly parents and stuff like that you know be, stuff to be able to fit in getting off the tram or, or, or the train or stop early and doing an extra kilometer or something like that walking you know they that, that's it about finding things that people enjoy or, or they can really sort of conveniently fit into their day yeah and then it's funny isn't it because you know even if you talk about risks of falls and fractions and things like that even if you're not improving bone health if your muscles are getting stronger you're inherently protecting yourself from falls yeah if and when you do fall you know the the likelihoods of, of fractures are going to be dependent on your bone health obviously and, and how bad the fall is but if you can train your body in a way to 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 resist the falls and develop the force or the power to be able to resist when you make that false step or you try and catch yourself, that's protective in itself. So I think that there seems to be somewhat of kind of doom and gloom around the fact that we we can't do much to improve bone with age, but certainly maintaining that and improving the rest of your bodily functions is a really positive thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. As, as you say, that um, you know, when you look at the systematic reviews, and and we can go into ten or fifteen reasons why this might be the case, but overall, um, the 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 trials show maybe one, two, three, four percent improvement in bone in in older adults, and and you have to compare this sort of two to four percent with the fact that osteoporosis relates to about a 20-25% deficit in, in bone compared to a healthy young person. And the drug treatments that are available can improve bone mass by, say, 8% or so, 10% over maybe 18 months. So really, you, you, you're getting kind of potentially half the clinical benefit of a, a proven drug treatment. Um, so you're right that there, 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 but there are other ways that if you don't fall you don't fracture and, and there is quite convincing evidence that a number of different exercise types are good at making people um fall less and and so that that's definitely sort of a, another way people can kind of attack the problem obviously it'd be ideal for for every you know to, to improve every aspect of the system but um you know it's, it, there's certainly a lot more evidence for the effective exercises for, for balance and falls rather than, than bone in older adults at the moment. So speaking on that then, what, what, are you, what, what are you working on moving forward and what are your big things you're, you're kind of excited about? 
there's different bits. I mean, this um, stuff with kids and their, their early life motor development. So we, we've looked and we've seen that kids that, that walk earlier tend to have bigger, stronger bones sort of um, in infancy, in adolescence, even in um, in older age. And it's just trying to understand um, how to make that useful. So it's very hard to predict uh, when children are going to walk. So I, I have two children. Um, one walked at uh, about 11 months, one walked at about 15, 16 months, you know, so they're about two or three standard deviations apart. They're sort of the op opposite ends of the spectrum. Similar genetics, nutrition, uh, parental care and stuff like that, you know, so it's very, very hard to predict kids that walk. So how, how do we sort of, you know, put an, an intervention in place in the general population? And so it's probably going to be certain uh, subgroups of kids who we know um, children with Down syndrome or with cerebral palsy where we can do sort of uh, physiotherapy and, and, and try and improve their early life motor development. Um, so that, that's one thing, trying to make something that's useful. We've seen that there's a good clear sort of association, but it, it's something that that actually sort of we can do and put into practice. Um, we've also focused a lot previously on sort of bone mass and bone size related to osteoporosis. Um, and we're starting to look more now at joint shape. So um, we know that not only the amount of bone that you've got, but also sort of the shape of your hips, the shape of your spine um, seem to be affected, particularly by this very earliest activity. So this has relevance for things like osteoarthritis and also fractures so that you could be in your even before the you leave the womb or, or shortly after you could be really setting yourself up for for kind of lifelong joint health. But that's sort of a, a very early stage. So the, you're starting to get more interested in the kind of how the early stage affects the rest of life. Yeah, so, so if you, you have a look, you know, there's such a dramatic change and explosion in the skeleton before and, and shortly after birth. So if you think you, you go from a, a single cell to, to um, 45 centimetres long in nine months, you know, so you have a... If you even and this continues sort of in, in you know, in postnatal life. So, you know, the, the rate at which your skeleton is growing in length in the womb and then in, in early sort of postnatal life when you, you know, in the first year or two is so far beyond anything at any other stage of life. If you look at the, the, the graphs of it, you know, the teenage uh, puberty is just sort of a blip in comparison to, to this. So you've got this explosion, the shape, the size of the skeleton is changing at a rate you know, you'll, you'll never have again. And so it seems logical that, that um, it would be kind of very receptive if mechanical stimuli are good else, other periods, and it'd be, they'd, they'd be good then. And so having a look at, um, firstly, children that, that have impaired mechanical stimuli and trying to sort of, um, you know, make sure that that's improved. So children who are preterm or uh, have a breech uh, position so they can't load their, their legs um, so much and, and seeing how, how those things and then postnatal movements, so walking and, and crawling and things like that, if there's some way we can can try and sort of help um, healthy bone and joint development right from the start because they say that this is a, a really unique period where the skeleton's kind of almost been set um, and uh, so chances are that, that you know, you adjust the trajectory Early yeah. in the journey, you get a chance to make a, an impact. But I say this is, you know, a lot of it's observational at the moment. Um, so quite a way to go to, to, to put something in that's sort of clinically relevant.
<laughs> I was hoping for something like this because it, it was a really uh, phenomenal concept, concept, conversation into bone physiology and um, how sensitive it is, and and it's just fascinating how malleable it is across lifetime. Um, and I wish you all the well with your research. How can people keep in touch? With you? How can how can they contact you? All that stuff. Yeah, well, on. Uh Online, so I mean, uh, Twitter is um, at AD Island, um, like the country, um, and uh, yeah, you Google, you know, the the uh, Manchester Metropolitan University, so you can see sort of um, profile and things I've been up to and, and things like that. But try try to keep active on Twitter, sort of share things that um, I'm interested. New articles that come up, and um, particularly on this kind of area of the bone and its response to to exercise and, and inactivity.